The rising inequality and growing political instability that we see today are the direct result of decades of bad economic theory. It's time to build our economy from the bottom up and from the middle out, not the top down. Middle out economics is the answer. Because Wall Street didn't build this country, great middle class built this country. The more the middle class thrives, the better the economy is for everyone, even rich people like me. This is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer, a podcast about how to build the economy from the middle out. Welcome to the show. Happy New Year, Paul, and welcome to 2024, the scariest year since 2020. (laughs) Happy New Year to you, Goldie. Uh, Is there anything you're looking forward to this year? Yes, getting it over with. Uh, I can uh, I can only assume that uh, you are talking about the uh, the presidential elections in November. That's right. As as uh, we refer to in my house, the end times. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know that's certainly going to dominate the year, and you know I certainly do miss the golden days of presidential elections, like back when I was covering the 2012 presidential election between (laughs) Mitt Romney and Barack Obama, which seems so delightfully low stakes now, but you know. That's right. Remember remember when you and I were both Santorum delegates? That's right. That's right. We were we were trying to keep Santorum in the race a little longer, so we uh, we caucused for him. We did not succeed, but uh, unfortunately, no. Yeah. The, the good old days when Rick Santorum was on the ticket. That's right. This this may explain why I I still get Nikki Haley uh, fundraising texts. <laughs> So, yeah, we are entering an election year, a presidential election year, and uh, it's going to be quite the show. I believe, I don't know about you, Goldie, but I believe that some of the fundamentals of election politics still holds true. I still think that the American people vote around their wallets, uh, around Mm -hmm. the economy. If they're doing well, they will vote for an incumbent. If they're not doing so well, they will try something new. Um, I think that despite all the efforts to push things to identity politics or uh, whether insurrections are good or bad things, I think that (laughs) when you get right down to it, I think that the economy is still going to be a huge defining issue of the the election, if not the huge defining issue of the 2024 elections. That's right. As one of our our the great American statesmen once said, "It's the economy, stupid," <laughs> and and for that, uh, I have a 2024 corollary because of how weird things have been over the past couple of years, and that is, it's the stupid economy. <laughs> Well, why don't you explain what you mean by that? Because uh, uh, while I while I appreciate the wordplay, I think that maybe it's not as clear as, as you might think it is. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of people are afraid to say this because, of course, uh, there are still people who are suffering. It's not great for everybody. But my God, is this economy strong? I know we had this bout of uh, high inflation, but we've also had high wage growth. And over the past couple of years, wages have actually grown faster than inflation. Not for everybody, but for most people and particularly at 
the lower end of the income scale. So inflation has come down. We've had dramatically and very quickly, much faster than was expected. And without the two years of seven and a half unemployment that people like uh, Larry Summers austerely uh, warned us we needed, uh, we have now 22 months in a row of uh, below 4% unemployment. That is a 50 plus year record. Uh, we have higher than expected GDP growth. We had a new uh, jobs report come out today, which uh, beat expectations. We have uh, no sign of recession, despite all of the doomsaying. So if you think about it, if uh, elections are won or lost on the economy, then uh, Biden should be doing pretty well. And you should see it in the polls. But you're not because people are still feeling pretty sour about the economy. It's explainable in that it takes a while for price expectations to be reset. And we had a spurt of uh, inflation that, you know, many adults had never experienced in their lifetime. It's been a long time since we've had that, uh, decades. And so people are still feeling that things look like they're expensive, even though in real dollars, they're not really, other than a few uh, important categories like housing. And food, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. well, some food, you know. And also, uh, look, Americans have grown accustomed to cheap food. Food is, uh, in many ways, a lot cheaper now than it was 40, 50 years ago in terms of percent of your paycheck. The fact that it's not as cheap as it was a few years ago, uh, a couple years ago before the pandemic. Okay, I understand that. And it feels expensive. But all in all, this is not just a strong economy, not just an economy that's stronger than was projected, but an economy that is stronger than almost anywhere else in the world. The United States has done so much better coming out of the COVID pandemic than Europe, than China than much of the rest of the world. And so you would expect that to be reflected in consumer sentiment, and you would expect that to be reflected in Biden's polling numbers, and of course they're not. So that's what I mean by the stupid economy. Yeah, and and there, there are quite a few factors there. Like the beginning of last year, at least one survey of economists found that 85% of them predicted a recession to happen in 2023. <laughs> right. And that sort of set the tone for the year. And so this year, I've noticed uh, economists are much more optimistic about how the economy will go. Uh, we'll see if that's bad news or not since they were <laughs> yeah, so wrong last it, year. That in itself is scary. You know, I've said it before that I've, I now belong to the nobody knows nothing about nothing school of economics. It's literally impossible to predict such a chaotic system. So who knows what things will look like in November? Exactly. So there are things that we can't control about the uh, the the current situation, right? I think that it's quite possible that if unemployment stays low and if prices continue to decline or if if prices stay even and even decline in the coming months, that Americans will feel better about the economy. But you well, know, to, that to is... be clear, Paul, let, let's use the right language. It's it's disinflation, not not deflation. Prices are not coming down. They're just not increasing at the rate they were increasing. 
Well, in some uh, sectors, and, prices are de- yes, decreasing. Obviously, so. there's volatile there's volatile sec- sectors like food and fuel and, and housing. Mm-hmm. But there are, I think there are three primary economic areas that are really going to have an outsized influence on how people are feeling about the economy and therefore how they are going to vote in November in the presidential election. I wanted to talk about these sort of three major uh, economic areas uh, just to sort of set the table so that we know what to be looking out for over the course of the year. There's going to be a lot of nonsense. You can't have a presidential election without nonsense. But in a uh, presidential election. But I think, you know, but Trump adds uh, will add a certain amount of gravitas to the debate and dignity. Yes. Uh, so <laughs> but I think that that these three economic issues could wind up shaping the 2024 elections and ultimately influencing influencing the results one way or the other. So do you want to do okay. you want me to do you want me to walk you through the yeah, first ha- one here Gold? Yeah, you, you you've got you you've got your three outline Paul, you have at it. Tell me what <laughs> what what are we looking at for the coming year? All right. I think one of the one of the biggest conversations we're going to have in the economy or especially one that uh the the Biden team would want us to have over the coming year is uh taxes. A conversation right. around taxes. And there's a few issues sort of at play here. One is at the end of 2025, almost all of the major tax provisions of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act that uh Donald Trump helped pass in 2017 will expire. Right. And that's important for a lot of reasons. It, it means that this election uh, is basically going to determine whether those cuts simply disappear or whether they are, you know, renewed for another however long, five, 10 years. And that act was in many ways sort of the last gasp of Reaganomics. Do you want to do you want to talk about that a little bit, Goldie? Yeah, of course, it predominantly cut taxes on the wealthy and on corporations. And it's important to remember that we have deficit hawks talking about the budget deficit and the national debt. But if uh, you eliminated the Trump tax cuts and the Bush tax cuts, again, mostly on the wealthy and on corporations, outside of extraordinary expenditures during the COVID pandemic and the Great Recession, that accounts for 90% of our deficit over the past 20 years. So it's an incredibly irresponsible thing to do to cut those taxes at the top. And in return, all the studies showed that we really got nothing out of it. Uh, We got lower uh, uh, tax revenues. We did not get a bump in business investment as promised. There's no indication that we got a bump in job creation or uh, wages, let alone the $4,000 a year uh, bump in income that Trump promised to the typical American household. So there's very little to show for these cuts other than uh, increased uh, profits uh, for corporations, after-tax profits for corporations, and, and hoarding among the super rich. Yeah, that's that's billions of dollars that were taken basically out of paychecks and out of the economy and and just moved over into the corporate profits, uh, which have skyrocketed since since the tax cuts were passed. So, right, and it, and it's important to understand that there's a middle out explanation for why this is true. I mean, trickle down economics tells you that if you cut taxes on the wealthy and corporations, they're going to invest all that money in creating new jobs and everybody will benefit. But in fact, 
when you cut taxes on corporations, what you do is you disincentivize reinvesting in, uh, in creating jobs and expanding manufacturing, uh, because in fact, uh, that was one way uh, that companies used to use to avoid paying taxes. Because if you uh, reinvested, uh, it, wasn't, it didn't go straight to profit and get taxed. You cut that tax rate, and now there's less incentive to avoid uh, taxes by investing in your own company. So of course, you just do stock buybacks and dividends. And some of uh, some of Trump's campaign have already proposed uh, even expanding the tax cuts this time around. So this is clearly a de- uh, conversation we're going to be having over the next year. So you know, President Biden has proposed a more middle out idea of what uh, what a tax code should be. He's proposed restoring the child tax credit, uh, expanding the credit from two thousand per child to three thousand per child every year for children ages six and older and $3,600 per child for children younger than six years old, right? And he's also proposed raising taxes for married couples with more than $450,000 taxable income every year, right? Which is a very small portion of the population. Is it the top 1% Goldie or is it the... It's uh, uh, like the top one and a half percent probably. Top one and a half. So, so, so probably right a up there. falls... Yeah, somewhere in that, close to the top one percent. Yeah, and there are also proposals to uh, to raise corporate taxes. There are uh, proposals to uh, raise taxes on stock buybacks again. Uh, President Biden has already passed the first ever tax on stock buybacks. It was just a one percent tax. He's talked about raising it to four percent. So there's a real conversation here about why we tax, who we tax, and what taxes can do that I think right. should be a pretty important conversation over the course of the year because what Biden is proposing is, you know, taxing wealthy people at the the share that that ordinary Americans are paying, that the working Americans are paying and then investing that in the economy to to improve outcomes for the middle class. And it's also it's a it's a great fight to pick because Americans Republicans, Democrats, and independents love the idea of taxing the rich more because they've seen for the last 40 years what it's what happens when you continually cut taxes on the rich. It doesn't trickle down to anybody else. It just winds up uh, floating up at the top of the income scale where they hoard it. Right. And it, and it drives inequality. I mean, one of the interesting things from our history is that the top marginal tax rate was never higher than in the 1950s during the uh, Eisenhower administration when it was uh, over 90%. That doesn't mean 90% on everything you earn, just 90% above a certain rate. And one of the things that was characteristic of that era was there wasn't this huge disparity between CEO pay and the rest of the workers in the company, because why bother? Because if once you get above, uh, you know, a million dollars, you're being taxed at 90 percent back then. You know, today, you know, tens of millions, uh, 10 million dollars, you're going to be taxed at over 90 percent. It's not worth making that money because you're not getting most of it. Uh, So uh, there was no incentive to have hundred million dollar payouts to CEOs. Uh, And so it's important to remember that taxes are about much more than just paying for stuff or investing in things. Taxes are also a way in a market economy to maintain a certain amount of uh, equity, both in uh, wealth and income and in power. It's a way of uh, preventing 
uh, extreme concentrations of wealth and power at the top, which ultimately undermine both the economy and our democracy. So the second issue that I want to talk about, sort of bouncing off what you just said, uh, is I think probably the most important metric for middle out economics in general is, is, you know, growing the paychecks of American workers. And I think that, you know, there, there, there are a whole bunch of different fronts uh, in this, uh, the sort of hot labor summer that we saw last year uh, with President Biden joining striking auto workers uh, for the first time in modern history, a president putting his finger on the scale of workers was a huge thing. Um, hopefully, well, what, a, what, a, what a scandal siding with working people. <laughs> well, if you if you pay attention to uh, op-ed pages, it was a huge uh, controversy. It was it was the worst thing a president has done in the last ten years. But yeah, I think most most Americans appreciated that. So we're undoubtedly going to see more labor actions this year, and uh, I think that conversation is going to keep going. You know, I think there there are things that Congress and the president can do to uh, improve to make it easier to unionize, to protect workers who want to unionize. And I think that should be a part of the conversation this coming year. I think one layup that has, I'm surprised, has not happened already is a push to raise the federal minimum wage, which, let me remind you, is still $7.25 an hour for untipped workers, which is should be a huge scandal. I think is one of the most shameful uh, developments in in American labor history is that it's been at 7.25 since the beginning of the Obama administration. Since 2009. Yeah, 2009. So it was passed by the Bush administration. And, you know, you can say that, well, most places are paying much more than 7.25 for starting wages, but the federal minimum wage is important kind of along the lines of what you were saying about taxes, Goldie, in that it it raises the bar for everyone, right? When you raise the minimum mm-hmm. wage, it puts pressure on employers to raise their wages higher than the minimum wage. So I think we should be uh, talking about at least $15 an hour now at this point uh, for a federal minimum wage, uh, because there are millions of workers who are left behind in parts of the country that haven't raised the minimum wage, including perhaps most shamefully of all, your home state of Pennsylvania. One of a number of states where the state minimum wage is the federal minimum wage, and it has uh, all types of, of uh, effects up and down the wage scale. In most places, of course, what that means is we don't actually have a minimum wage anymore because uh, 725 is so far below the market rate. But that's but remember, that's not true for everybody. The people who really suffer the most from this are the least empowered workers, uh, are the ones who don't have uh, who have little ability to compete either due to geography or circumstance or lack of documentation. These are the people who are being exploited the most largely immigrants documented or not, uh, working in small businesses where they don't know what their rights are, uh, either because of language barriers or whatever, do not have the uh, ability to move to higher paying jobs or don't know that they have that ability. So, you know, it's interesting, Paul, you said there are things that uh, Congress and the White House can do. It's important to kind of separate these things out. Uh, because there are some things that only Congress can do, and there are some things that the White House can do without Congress. Obviously, the minimum wage is something that, at the federal level, uh, Congress controls. 
And so the president can provide leadership. I think it's a a great issue to run on uh, because the minimum wage is very popular. When you put minimum wage measures on the ballot uh, in red states, they overwhelmingly pass and by large majorities. But obviously, the president can't do this on his own. That said, they do have uh, the White House does have rulemaking authority over things like the overtime threshold. Uh, the Biden administration has proposed raising it to what is it, uh, uh, sixty some thousand dollars a year, right? It's in the sixties. I don't remember the exact number. That would mean that anybody uh, earning below that uh, rate would automatically qualify for uh, time and a half overtime for every hour worked over forty hours a week. We like to call overtime as the as uh, minimum wage for the middle class. We would like to see that go far higher. It should be closer to $85,000, dollars $100,000 a year. Hell, everybody should qualify for overtime as far as I'm concerned. But there's also some things which the president has been doing very effectively, and uh, that's on issues of uh, competition. Uh, for the first time in a long time, we have an administration that is actually taking antitrust enforcement seriously. Yeah, and, and those things are important because they put competition back into the labor market. And as we saw in 2021 and 2022, when, when you know, uh, pandemic restrictions ended and, and workers were rushing back into the labor market, that's great for workers when there's more competition, when, when employers have to compete to hire workers because right. it raises wages remarkably quickly and historically high. So the, the, the Biden administration overtime threshold proposed is $55,000 annually. I was ah. mistaking it with the New York state uh, proposal, which raised it to 64000 this year. So, yeah, there's a lot of room to go up in there. Um, it's a great start. But overtime is, is one of the most, I think, underappreciated uh, labor standards. And we could, we could use some more, some more energy there. Mm -hmm. And I also don't want to um, underestimate the... The, the role of uh, the bully pulpit on these issues, particularly we saw that uh, with the UAW strike. The fact that the president did go to the uh, picket lines and stand with workers, it was historic and it was historically important because uh, it was only a couple weeks later that you uh, had Ford settle that strike after the president took sides with workers. And once Ford settled, uh, GM settled and Stellantis. I can't get used to that. I know. I'll just say Chrysler <laughs> settled. And then after the big three settled, you had a bunch of the non-unionized automakers, uh, largely in southern states, uh, announced that they were matching the uh, the UAW uh, wage increases, uh, obviously, to try to head off uh, attempts to un unionize their plants, but it shows you that it's not just union workers that win. It's uh, non-unionized workers in that same industry won from the strike too. And of course, uh, one of the things that uh, our plutocratic overlord Nick Hanauer loves to say is that when workers have more money, uh, businesses have more customers and hire more workers. So these historic wage increases in the auto industry are going to have a huge spillover effect on local businesses wherever these plants are located. Exactly. And that's that's why wages matter all across the board. That's why Biden and Democrats running for Congress should should really 
not run away from raising the minimum wage, but but call on raising it even higher than than the past because this is a very popular issue. You know, I think like six out of ten Americans approve of raising the minimum wage. Uh, one poll from Data for Progress showed that seventy four percent of voters supported raising the minimum wage to twenty dollars an hour. So there's there's will there. Yeah, good good politics, Paul, and good policy because the uh, the results are in. There's been a number of studies uh, published over the last couple of years that shows that surprise uh, uh, raising the minimum wage is not a job killer. In fact, the the state and local jurisdictions that raised the minimum wage saw faster wage and job growth than those that did not. And in fact, the larger the minimum wage increase, the larger the difference. Yeah. So I think that that Putting paychecks first is a really popular issue. It's one that Biden has a record on doing and that it's something that that is popular with virtually all uh, voters, uh, or at least a vast majority, Democrats, Republicans, and independents. So I think that's going to be a big issue moving forward. The third economic factor that I think is going to be a huge deal in this election and that I don't think has gotten nearly enough attention is housing affordability. Housing costs are a huge reason why people are frustrated with the economy. I think a lot of economists have sort of misinterpreted the angst over prices. Uh, I think that a lot of it is coming directly from housing um, because it's getting impossible to afford housing in large parts of the United States. Right. Welcome to Seattle, America. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Rent prices have gone very high throughout the pandemic. And now, of course, because the Federal Reserve has raised uh, interest rates so high to, uh, in their mind, combating inflation, um, its mortgages (laughs) are out of control for most Americans. Uh, So it's very hard to buy a house. It also means that more Americans are sitting in their houses, uh, you know, if, if uh, housing prices were lower, they would have moved by now. Uh, but the market, so there's actually right. less available housing stock for people who are looking for homes. So it's just generally a mess for everyone. In economic terms, Paul, we say that the these high mortgage rates have created more friction in the housing market. So it's uh, harder for people to move because when you have a 2% mortgage, uh, 2% rate on the mortgage rate on the house you're currently living in and the house you want to live in, uh, you'd have to pay 8%. It's kind of hard to trade that 2% for 8%. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's disincentivizing people from moving, which is creating a, a super tight market and keeping prices high. Uh, when pretty much every other inflationary factor has has eased off, uh, housing remains very, very high. So what can we do about this? Obviously, the Federal Reserve is going to be lowering interest rates this year. They've said two or maybe three times. That's going to improve mortgages. Uh, so homeowners might see some relief in the coming year. But I think this is also to go back to our first point, kind of a tax issue too, right? Like I think that the tax code favors owning real estate over obtaining housing, uh, which is a fine distinction, but I think that it, it makes housing uh, a commodity, right? Like it, it makes housing into into an investment like like stocks or something like that, whereas it should prioritize owning and keeping and improving your home. So I think that we can talk, we should talk about making changes to the tax code to favor housing over over simply accruing as much high-value property as possible. Uh, I also think that we could uh, offer tax credits to renters. 
uh, that would close racial housing gaps and offer families more options for stable, secure housing than the current, uh, you know, financialized housing market, right? Like, I think that the way that the tax code is set up right now, renting is basically a loss. You know, you can't take your rent. Uh, you can't you can't put rent towards your taxes. Yeah. A tax credit for renters, Paul. Why, why do you hate the American dream? <laughs> well, look, I think that home ownership is great for a lot of people, but I also think uh, that uh, full you disclosure, know, you and I are both homeowners. We are. We are both homeowners. I also rented for the majority of my adult life. And, you know, I would have uh, liked some some tax credits for that. I would have liked to have been able to buy a house even sooner, uh, you know. And I think that, that a tax system that prioritizes homeownership over renting is okay. But I think that renters should be getting something out of this, too, because I think that not everybody wants to own a home. I think that some people like renting. And I think that the tax code is increasingly out of touch with the way that people actually live their lives. And, uh, you know, I think that renting is okay. The most important thing is everybody's got to have housing, right? And and I think the tax code right now is is still based in sort of a rural and suburban model where owning a home is the, the end-all be-all. And I don't think that's that's what we should be doing. That's what we should be prioritizing anymore. I think it's more important that people have housing. Yeah, you know me, Paul. I have opinions on this. <laughs> You do. <laughs> I have a. What about I have a, Yeah, I have a lot of opinion. Look, look. If I, I I've said this before. If I was a benevolent dictator, I would simplify the tax code, Paul. Uh, mm-hmm. I would get rid of all deductions and exemptions, but the standard deduction, and that means no home mortgage interest deduction. That means no charitable deduction. That means no deductions whatsoever. And while that may sound extreme, remember that over 80% of Americans don't itemize their taxes, which means all they get is that standard deduction anyway. So the the way we've set up, as you said, this tax code that heavily favors homeownership over renting, uh, that heavily subsidizes homeownership, uh, that is something I know, I know the vast majority of our listeners probably benefit from. Uh, but it is inefficient, it incentivizes the wrong things, and it is incredibly unfair. So, you know, that wouldn't fix uh, our housing crisis on its own, uh, but it would take away some of the bad incentives that have helped create it. Personally, what what I think we need is a uh, is a massive investment in publicly owned housing, not just for poor people, but for the middle class, because we uh, the only way to provide uh, renters the same kind of stability uh, that homeowners enjoy. And by the way, that is the main benefit of home ownership. Uh, if you look at it over most periods of time in most parts of the country, home ownership, which is billed as a great investment, is not really that great an investment. It's really expensive, and housing does not appreciate uh, faster than, say, the S&P uh, 500 uh, index funds. But the real benefit of home ownership is housing stability because it offers a 30-year fixed-rate mortgage, offers a kind of rent control, and that once you have that mortgage, uh, you know what your monthly payments are month after month for 30 years, and they never go up. That is the bulk of your housing costs. Other things, you know, maintenance, taxes, whatever, that goes up over time. 
but that monthly mortgage payment does not. That's like your rent payment being guaranteed for 30 years. Imagine that if you were a renter, if you could get that. That's what we should be looking for in housing is how to give renters this, that same sort of stability where they know that they can lay down roots in a neighborhood, in a community, and raise their children there without having to buy a house and without having the fear that uh, suddenly that neighbor beco neighborhood becomes really hot and they're forced out into the exurbs and a long commute uh, just to be able to afford their rent. Uh, there are ways to do this. We don't have time on this podcast for me to explain the idea in full, but it's doable. And like a lot of things, and we talked about this earlier, uh, it requires leadership. It reply, uh, the, the, the presidential bully pulpit can go a long way towards moving us in this direction. Personally, I feel a little more confident that we might get that out of uh, middle out Biden than uh, from Donald Trump, who comes from a family of uh, uh, exploitive slumlords. <laughs> Yeah. So, well, I'm excited for your uh, 2028 run for the presidency, Goldie. But I think that uh, there is a lot that that Biden can do to talk about improving housing. And I think that he can start by sort of having a bigger conversation about what the purpose of housing in America is. And I think that's I think that's a conversation that's long past due. I think it's it's you know, it's certainly caused housing speculation caused the uh, the the great recession of 2008 2009 and i don't think we've really dealt with sort of the root ca causes of that i don't think we've really uh, had a come to jesus moment when it comes to housing in america and i think that a presidential election is a great way to do that so uh, there you go trying to bring religion into into it again <laughs> yeah so, Paul, a lot, lot of ideas uh, here, a lot of facts, a lot of uh, predictions for the coming year where one might read more about this stuff. So a lot of these ideas come from uh, The Pitch, which is Civic Ventures President Zach Silk's uh, Substack. Especially as we head into this election year, I really suggest that our listeners sign up for that. Uh, we'll have a link to it in the show notes. It's civicventures.substack.com. And yeah, so I think that that newsletter has become a, a great resource of how to keep track of all of the economic news happening every week. And I think that as we head into a presidential election year, when this stuff is going to be on the front pages uh, almost all the time, I think that it's really important to get that middle out understanding of, of the, the topics that everyone's talking about. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.